first reading this morning comes from the Gospel according to St. Matthew and can be found in chapter 15 on page 982 of the Church Bible. Matthew 15, beginning to read at verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull, Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and it's verses 18 to 29, and it can be found on page 1234 of your pew Bibles. To the church in Thyatira, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of foods sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, as I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious, 
and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks to Faye and David for bringing our readings this morning. So good morning. So as we come together to God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that your written word of scripture may now and always be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Holding back the Red Sea there. You may have seen this, but recently there was published a survey commissioned by Disney of the top ten things parents wish their children could enjoy. Lost childhood pleasures they regret their children will never experience. And if you saw it, you'll know that top of the list was making tape recordings of the weekly top 40. Others included handwritten thank you notes, waiting for photos to be developed, watching Saturday night television with the family, and renting videos from the local shop. And you won't be surprised to find that this caused a reaction. And somebody called John Walsh, writing in the I newspaper, put the question, what aspects of the 2014 world will we be waxing lyrical about in 30 years' time? And he suggested five things. Driving cars. Shopping, going to the pub, Sunday lunch, and church going. Think about it. This is what he said about that. It's extraordinary to recall that there were days when we bathered in hundreds, not for flash mobs or to listen to music in fields, but in old, drafty stone edifices where we'd look at a statue of a dead person wearing some gross thorny headgear, sing little tunes together, and silently ask an invisible being to save us from having to visit this really naff venue called hell. Crazy or what? Now some people may very well find this deeply upsetting but it's indicative of how irrelevant many, if not most, people think the church is today. When we were in Cornwall recently on a glorious sunny morning, P. 
People are out enjoying themselves on the beach and in the water, whilst we went to church. And apart from replacing hundreds with a handful, Mr Walsh would probably have felt vindicated as it had absolutely no relevance to the people outside in the sunshine at all. And relevance is one of the major issues that the church is grappling with today, with many pressures to conform to the world's agenda. And this reminds us of the eternal relevance of Scripture as we turn our attention to the church in Thyatira in first century Turkey. And if you've been gathering with us over these past few weeks, you'll know that we're looking at the letters to the churches written by John on the Isle of Patmos, where he was in exile. And last week, with Domi on Snow Hill, we considered Pergamon, and today we've reached Thyatira. And these letters, if you look at them carefully, you'll see they follow a common pattern. They all begin with a description of Jesus, which they've been taken from chapter 1. In this letter, he is described as the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. You can find that in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. And then come the four C's. Commendation, complaint, correction, which carries with it a promise, and a command that they should listen to what God has to say. And the period when John was writing was a time of great persecution for the church, as he himself was experiencing after all, that's why he'd been exiled to Patmos. But at Thyatira, the danger from inside was far greater than from outside. Now, Thyatira was the least important of the seven cities politically. But you'll note that its church receives the longest letter. And its central place in the seven letters, may suggest that its problems were well known. Certainly, verse 23 suggests that Christ's response to the church will be a lesson for all the churches. As you know, it says, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds, because all seven churches will have received all the seven letters. So Thyatira then was a major commercial centre, but also the smallest of the seven cities. It traded in earthenware and purple dye. One of these traders was Lydia, who became a Christian in Philippi after meeting the Apostle Paul which we read about in Acts 16. And there are some suggestions that she may have returned home to help found the church. The city, which I gather no longer remains, did not have a temple devoted to the worship of emperors, as some of them did, 
So the church here was not troubled in that particular way. In fact, as we read, they were doing many things well and are affirmed and commended for these. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Today we're very used to that technique, that if you need to criticise someone or point out something unpleasant, you begin with positive things so that the criticism is seen in context. I know in my days as a head teacher that's certainly something that I used. So although their Christian life and service excelled that in Ephesus, as their love had not grown cold, with all your experiences of these letters, you know that there is a but coming. And the but in Thyatira was based on compromise. Compromise in their commercial lives, which lead to compromise in their spiritual life. And the problem centred on the way that the business life of the city was structured. Thyatira was known for its many trade guilds, and it was necessary to belong to them in order for you to do business. And this would have meant joining in with their activities, especially the regular common meals. And at these meals, meat dedicated to a pagan deity was eaten, probably the patron god of the guild. And these festivities usually ended up as a drunken orgy. So in this context, it is no surprise that the main requirements of the apostles in Jerusalem to the Gentiles' believers is you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols and from sexual immorality. You'll find that encounter there in Acts 15. And it seems that many believers in Thyatira had forgotten these wise words or felt that they had been superseded by the superior wisdom of the Gnostics. These Gnostics took their name from the Greek word for knowledge and they claimed that they knew God in a heightened, super-spiritual way. And this, they said, gave them true enlightenment and was what all true Christians should aspire to. And after all, it sounded impressively intellectual and fitted in well with the philosophy of the day. But their heresy dared to belittle Jesus by saying that he wasn't the Christ, the Son of God. And it dangerously misled believers by saying that knowing God was a purely spiritual thing that had nothing to do with day-to-day -day living. And they believed that they had a monopoly of true gnosis or knowledge, which they shrouded in secrecy, thus giving it a certain bogus attractiveness and they sought to persuade true believers that they were second-class Christians. Yet to follow the Gnostic route was to enter a gospel-free zone, where Jesus is not honoured and worshipped as Lord, 
and where the cross is anathema. Gnosticism is very difficult to pin down and meant different things at different times in different places. And in Thyatira, it seems to have been based on the woman called Jezebel, a code name taken from the wife of Ahab, who we can read about in 1 Kings, who had psychic powers and profound power over people. In the previous letter, the problem in the church at Pergamon was identified by allusion to an Old Testament figure, Balaam the prophet. This time it is Jezebel, wife of King Ahab, who both came to a very sticky end. Jezebel, like the women of Moab, that Balaam and Balak used to seduce the Israelites from the true worship of Yahweh, was a foreign woman who introduced the worship of Baal, a rival god, into Israel. And that was at the heart of many other evils, summed up in 2 Kings 9.22, as idolatry and witchcraft. And as in this 2 Kings, the phrase sexual immorality in this letter is a metaphor for spiritual playing around. And although paying lip service to the worship of Jehovah, her real religion was the gross nature worship of Tyre with its deification of sex. The Jezebel in Thyatira undermined loyalty to God by promoting tolerance towards pagan practices which lead to easy compromise with immoral and idolatrous practices and caused this church to be the most heavily influenced by Gnostic teaching. There were Christians who plunged deep into evil and courted the so-called deep things of Satan in order to demonstrate their moral superiority. They taught that spiritual freedom gave them sufficient liberty to practice idolatry and immorality and by so doing, became increasingly enslaved to these things which are not of God. For as far as Jesus is concerned, this whole approach is an absolute disaster. The church has no business compromising at any point with pagan worship and the practices that reflect and embody it. Here is in the devastating scenes that we'll find in Revelations 17 to 19, where the great whore is Babylon. Judgment is pronounced on Jezebel and all who have followed her. The throwing of a bed, great distress, which was pictured in verse 22, and the utter slaughter of verse 23 that will follow are no doubt symbolic but they are symbolic of the real and powerful action which the Lord will take at the appropriate time as the one whose flaming eyes search hearts and minds and will purge his people of their sin. So when we begin to get hold of it, we realise that this is serious stuff. But... To those who repent, 
The Lord promises that once this false teaching and compromise is removed, they will become the splendid missionary church that they are capable of. And for this to happen, their hearts and minds must be satisfied and filled with the Lord, so their reward may be living in the hope of the coming dawn of the morning star and sharing in the Lord's rule. The picture of the rod of iron is taken from Psalm 2 verse 9 and represents the authority to proclaim the rule or kingdom of God. They who reject it will perish, but those who accept it will live. Furthermore, to the church which is a faithful gospel lamp in the dark night of this world, Christ promises himself as the morning star, the assurance of the coming dawn, when lamplight will be swallowed up in the light of eternal day. And this promise to give the morning star refers ahead to Revelation 22:16, when Jesus describes himself as the bright morning star. And here we see a glimpse of the level of intimacy he offers to his people. He will share his very identity with them as he has with his royal authority. And Christian witness should be a sign of the dawning of that day, the dawn in which love, faith, service and patience will have their fulfilment and in which idolatry and immorality will be seen as the snares and delusions they really are. And Jesus will establish his glorious reign over the whole world. Sadly, it seems that the church in Thyatira didn't last very long. There appears to be no record of it after the end of the second century. And it is not known if this was caused by persecution, where they bore faithful witness to the end, or whether it had become so compromised that it had become indistinguishable from the pagan society around it. What we do know is that when John wrote, they had no more knowledge of their future than we do of ours. How I wonder would they have reacted if told that over the next hundred years they would cease to exist? And if they had been told, I wonder what difference it would have made to them and what they would have changed. And if we are placed in that situation, how would we respond? And what, if anything, would we change? I fear there are many churches today who may be facing a similar fate. In a recent article, Richard Charters, the Bishop of London, said that the biggest problem the church has today is that it is lacking in distinction. While civilization is in grave peril, being arrogant and deeply needy, the church is struggling to address these problems as it has failed to be countercultural. In the face of this situation, he says, Western religion is feeble. 
so often more concerned with maintaining the status quo and resisting change. And it is important that we see a clear distinction between compromise and change. Whilst many in Thyatira remained faithful, there were those within the church who saw compromise with the ways of the world as the way forward. Although the culture then is very different to that of today, the issues are the same. Does the church compromise with the ways of the world in order to be seen as relevant and have a voice, thus leaving it in danger of having nothing distinctive to say? Or does it stay true to itself whilst being prepared to change and adapt to meet the needs of the people and community it seeks to serve? And many in the church in Thyatira lost sight of the first commandment as they compromised with other gods. The first commandment to remind you says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And in these opening words to the Ten Commandments, God defines himself. And on these words, J. John, in his book 10, his commentary on the Ten Commandments, said this. When we read these opening words carefully, we can find in them direct or indirect mentions of four descriptions of God. He is God, the maker of all things. He is the Lord, the one who reveals himself to humanity. He is King, the one who is our God. He is Redeemer, the one who saves his people. And as such, he is worthy of our total allegiance. For once we fully grasp the awesome greatness of God, his love and compassion, who he really is, how can there be room for other gods? in whatever guise they may come. And that is the God of the church in Thyatira, and that is our God, the one we worship today, unchanging and eternal. So as we come to a conclusion, the challenge for the church then, as it is now, is being true and faithful, to the God revealed in Scripture, being distinctive and not compromised with the prevailing ways of the world, whilst at the same time offering real hope to people in need. In other words, bringing a changeless, life-giving gospel to a rapidly changing world and being prepared to hold fast to its message whilst adapting to change in the way that we reach people with it. And as we do so, we need to constantly remind ourselves, both as individuals and as a church, that the world's agenda is not God's agenda, and that we are called to be in the world, 
but not of the world. For the root of the problem in Thyatira was caused by their relationship with Jesus being out of joint. He had ceased to have, or never really had had, first place in their lives. And they had therefore replaced this with compromise and complacency. Compromise with bogus spirituality and complacency that their activity would pass for the real thing. And if we're honest with ourselves, we will know that it is easy to fall into that trap, to allow other things, however good in themselves, to take first place in our lives. So I think it's important, therefore, to allow this letter to speak to our hearts and to our situations, to allow God to examine us and to hear what the Spirit has to say, that we may commit ourselves afresh to the Lordship of Jesus, whose service is perfect freedom. Thank you, Peter. Serious words from a serious God. Let's just hold those words before us before we move on in our service, both for us as a church, but perhaps for you individually, where you are in your relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord at this moment in this place. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire. As Jesus gazes upon you this morning with eyes of flame, what does he see? For some, it may be a struggle with different things that take God's place. That seemed more important. For some here today, you will see a real struggle with sexual temptation that is real every day. For others, he may see someone just holding on, fearful to let go into his arms and his truth. For us as a church, where are we being distinctive and not compromising.
These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire. As we come in the presence of that God, we say together the words on the screen. Lord God, we have sinned against you. We have done evil in your sight. We are sorry and repent. Have mercy on us according to your love. Wash away our wrongdoing and cleanse us from our sin. Renew a bright spirit within us and restore to us the joy of your salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. To the one who is repentant, to the one who is victorious and does my will, I will give authority. I will also give that one the morning star. We surrender our lives afresh to your Lordship and we ask for your guidance in the coming days. All to your glory and all because you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For this we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. We stand and sing no other name but the name of Jesus.
We come to this table to remember all that Jesus did, all that Jesus does, and all that he means to us. For he asks us to remember him and to be remembered, to be put back together again as children of God. You are not what the world makes you, but you are children of God. And he invites you to come and feast on his love his mercy and his forgiveness. For the Lord is here. His Spirit is with us. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is indeed right. It is our duty and joy at all times and in all places to give you praise. Holy Father, Heavenly King, Almighty and eternal God, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. For he is your living word, and through him you've created all things from the beginning and formed us in your own image. Through him you have freed us from the slavery of sin, giving him to be born of a woman and to die upon the cross. You raised him from the dead and exalted him to your right hand on high. Through him you have sent upon us your holy and life-giving spirit, and made each one of us a people for your own possession. Therefore, with angels and with archangels <clears throat> and with all the company of heaven, we proclaim your great and glorious name, forever praising you and saying, Holy, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Please be seated. Accept now our praises, Heavenly Father, through your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And as we follow his example and obey his command, grant that by the power of your Holy Spirit, these gifts of bread and wine may be to us his body and his blood, who in the same night that he was betrayed, took bread and gave you thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. To you be glory and praise forever. In the same way after supper, he took the cup and gave you thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shared for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. To you be glory and praise forever. Therefore, Heavenly Father, we remember his offering of himself, made once for all upon the cross. We proclaim his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension. We look for the coming of your kingdom, and with this bread and this wine, we make the memorial of Christ, your Son, our Lord. Accept through him our great high priest, this our sacrifice of thanks and praise. And as we eat and drink these holy gifts in the presence of your divine majesty. Renew us by your spirit. Inspire us with your love and unite us in the body of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. To you be glory and praise forever. Through him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, with all who stand before you in earth and heaven, we worship you, Father Almighty, 
in songs of everlasting praise. Blessing and honor and glory and power be yours forever and ever. Amen. As our Savior has taught us, so we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Come to this table and remember Christ's death for you. Be aware that your sins are forgiven and come to the feast that he invites you to. Come as you are, come and be filled that you may reveal the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. If those who are administering can come. There is gluten-free bread and there is also non-alcoholic wine. Do ask as you receive if you would like to receive those things.